Welcome to Bible and Stuff, a podcast about the Bible. And stuff. I'm Glenn. And I'm Tanner. And this week we're taking uh, some time to talk with Mr. Sam Storms. Uh, we're really excited about it. He's got a book that recently came out um, that uh, just talks all about sin and what God does with it. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're really excited about it. I think it's great. And I'm always excited, as we talked earlier, um, about having another Oklahoma guy on the pod. I mean, I'm not in Oklahoma anymore, but I'm still, you know, I'm still an right. Oklahoma boy at heart. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Sam, I, I've known of Sam for a while. I've always appreciated what I've read from him and, and heard from him. And so I am I was really excited to get to talk to him. And I think uh, the interview turned out great and is hopefully really helpful. Hey guys, today on the show, like I said, we we're really excited to have Sam Storms joining us. Um, just really briefly, I, I want to go ahead and kind of give him an introduction of sorts before we hop into things. But Sam Storms is the senior pastor at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. Additionally, Sam is the author of many books, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and three things he'll never do. Sam, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you on with us today. Well, I'm excited about being here. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. <laughs> That's always good to hear. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's always concerning when people get on and they're like, well, yeah, I'm, well, it'll be I, good. Yeah, I don't want to be here. I've got better things to do. <laughs> no, I'm looking, I'm really excited about this. Well, you you wrote, you literally wrote a whole book on the topic. So I'm assuming you, you enjoy talking about it too. That's probably helpful. I do. I do. I wrote this book during COVID, by the way. So oh, when okay. everything was locked down, I thought, man, I'm going to redeem this time. I'm not going to waste it. So sure. That's awesome. So I guess we, we can thank the pandemic for the existence <laughs> of this book. Yeah. You know, I have really enjoyed, there, there have been a handful of people that we've talked to who have had almost a similar experience where whether they've been kind of dwelling on something for a while and just hadn't had the opportunity to do it and then COVID hit and it, but regardless of the, the case, it's really cool to see what uh, God has used that time uh, to, to produce. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited that you've been able yep. to do this too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just uh, go ahead and jump into it. I really enjoyed the way you started off the book because I thought it was very helpful to acknowledge how hard it is for many of us to not to not just feel complete condemnation all the time over our sin, even though we know the truth of the gospel. Why do you think it is that we struggle so much to live in reality of what God has done with our sin? Oh, I think there are probably a multiplicity of reasons. Just maybe the most central ones are uh, we are, to put it in language people can understand. I think we're hardwired for self-condemnation. Mm-hmm. We, um, we, I, I think the existence of the conscience, some people have a more robust conscience than others, but I think most Christians um, are quick to um, look on their own souls with contempt. I think we know ourselves so very well. We are keenly uh, conscious of the ways in which we have failed and then repeatedly done so, and we wonder if we're ever going to make any progress at all. So I think this, this, this kind of this built-in inclination for self-contempt and self-condemnation, um, and I think our society contributes to that a good deal. Then I think also there is um, the, just the accusations of the enemy, uh, the constant bombardment of what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 of these fiery missiles of the evil one raining down upon us. And I think a lot of that is uh, what I call the satanic twos, T-O-O. You know, you know you're, you're too ugly, mm. you're too dumb, mm. you're too sinful, mm-hmm. it's too late, um, you're too hopeless. Uh, all of these things that we constantly play a recording in our heads. And then I think obviously the other thing is we just are ignorant of what the Bible says. We really haven't seriously pondered and meditated upon the realities of what God has done with our sin. And I think it goes kind of along with that is uh, um, people remind us of our sin on a constant and daily basis, and they don't remind us, as they should, on the other hand, of God's magnificent mm-hmm. grace and what he's done for us in Jesus. So all of those factors, I think, weigh in to make um, to make this issue so pressing. Um, and then I think also maybe there is a, another dimension 
so many Christians uh, have been raised in or even are now present in what we might call legalistic churches that are very religiously oriented. And so there are this, there's this heightened bar of expectation of what you should and shouldn't do, even though the scriptures may not say anything about it. And the constant sense of coming up short is weighs heavily on the souls of a lot of people. So there are a lot of factors that go into the, the reason why I think this book is so important, the reason why the message of the book is so important uh, is because of the way that Christians deal constantly mm-hmm. with this sense of not just guilt also, but mm-hmm. shame. You know, it's not just that I'm, that I'm making mistakes. I am a yeah. mistake. Uh, that's what shame is. It's not so much that uh, I'm um, unqualified. I'm disqualified. I'm just, uh, I'm, a, an, I'm an embarrassment to the church, and I'm an embarrassment to God, and people get in that rut, in that mode of thinking, they can't break free of it. So that's that was really the driving force for why I yeah. wrote the book. It's funny. I, I I like that you mention, you know, both this external and internal thing that we deal with uh, when it comes to sin. And I, one of the things that I think I see happen a lot is people almost viewing their faith as this you know, like the, the star chart in elementary school where you get stars if you do good work or, you, you know, if if you got a real rough teacher, you get demerits if you you don't. And uh, yeah, right. just that works-based mentality um, really trips people up um, when it comes to the idea of, you know, when grace is introduced, how do we, how do we deal with that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I right. also liked how you, how you pointed out like met, you, you, I can't remember exactly how you said it just now, but it was maybe we don't know or we don't we don't pay enough attention to or think enough about uh, how God has dealt with our sin. Because I'll, I'll be real honest, like when I, f- I first saw your book, I've read a couple of the previous ones and really enjoyed them. And I was like, but I feel so quickly tempted to just be like, yeah, I know. I know all that. Like, I, I get the you know what I mean? I, I know, like, you know, <laughs> God's forgiven me and blah, blah, blah. But like now give me something to do or something else to to focus on and right. uh, but reading it has been a real joy to kind of slow down and go this is what it's all a- this was all about like i need i need these truths before any of that other stuff uh can mm. really uh, before i can be effective or before any of that can really matter uh but yeah. we're, we're really tempted to just kind of oh yeah 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 and move on uh without really dwelling on it yeah uh, i understand that and because we're, we're so performance oriented yeah. Um, and kind of a works orientation to the Christian living and salvation is so deeply ingrained in our souls that it takes the Spirit of God and the grace of God to rid us of that. Uh, I just, over the years um, in pastoral ministry, I think I'm coming up on the end of 48 years of uh, ministry. I just seen so many people, male and female, young and old, who live with a constant sense of defilement no matter what they do, no matter what they hear, no matter how many sermons they listen to, no matter how many years they've been present in the church, they can't escape this sense of, I I feel soiled. There's this deep stain that that I have inflicted upon myself. And therefore, um, the only way I can relate to God is one of, he's the judge and I'm the guilty party. And the idea of actually living in the freedom of forgiveness, of knowing all the multitude of ways in which God has dealt with our sin. And of course, the, the whole point of the book is to try to unpack all these beautiful images, these metaphors, these illustrative descriptions. It's almost as if the biblical writers from the Spirit of God are just saying, I need to find another way of saying mm-hmm. the same thing. Hopefully, it'll take root in your soul. Um, and... Uh, I just think the body of Christ needs that uh, because honestly, that's the only way we're going to um, experience the power of holy living. Is uh, we don't we don't um, we don't work for the grace of God. We work out of and from the grace of God. It's not as if okay, now I've got to crank it up on my own so that I will somehow come to experience the reality of what God has done with my sin. No, it's knowing that truth, having that deeply embedded in our hearts that find, that gives us the energy and the incentive and the motivation for pursuing God in, in holy living. Yeah, I mean, the way you describe it in the book, I think, is uh, you talk about the distinction between 
eternal union and experiential communion. Mm-hmm. Can you pull that apart for us a little bit right. more and, and let us know what you're thinking about it and why that's so oh, yeah. foundational for the rest of the stuff we're talking about? Sure. Yeah, that is a, that's a distinction that I fear most Christians don't understand. And I've seen so many um, theological errors that have emerged in the body of Christ because of a failure to understand this. So, for example, some who say, hey, look, I repented of my sins and I confessed them when I first got saved, so I'll never need to do that again. Uh, Or somebody else says, um, oh, no, um, if I don't repent of my sin, if I don't confess it on a daily basis, then whatever salvation I might have had, I've just lost, I've just forfeited and they need to understand this distinction. And again, the, 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 uh, the language I use for that is very intentional. Eternal, eternal union. In other words, we're talking about being united with Christ by faith in an unbreakable, inseparable, eternal, covenantal union. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That was established at the moment we came to faith in Jesus. When, when I repented, when you and I, all of us did, and we put our trust in Jesus, that eternal union was forged by the Spirit of God, and it is unbreakable. And that's the foundation on the basis of which we live. Um, I don't have to ask for forgiveness in order to enter into that eternal union. I have did that once, once and for all. So that is an established fact between me and God in terms of our relationship. But throughout the course of life, um, I, can, I can do things or fail to do things. As we all know, we call it <laughs> sin, <laughs> uh, selfishness, idolatry, whatever it is, that can disrupt uh, my capacity to enjoy that eternal union. It's not that the eternal union is terminated. It's not as if it somehow disappears. It's not as if somehow God breaks it. He, he will not. Uh, it's, but my capacity experientially to feel the joy of God's affection for me, to enjoy the peace that passes all understanding, to remain satisfied with the beauty of Christ in every respect, that experiential daily reality can fluctuate with, um, with obedience or sin in times of worship or in times of rebellion. And so that's why I call it experiential communion, experiential to differentiate it from what is eternal. Eternal is unending experiential, it's, it's up and down. It, it, I'm, I'm in and out. I, I, I feel God's affection one day. The next day, I just sense this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt. Uh, and so it's not so much the union with Christ that is in jeopardy, but my mm-hmm. communion, that is my daily intimacy, my fellowship with him. And I think what happens with Christians is they, they don't understand yeah. this distinction. And so getting back to the point, we only have to um, cry out to Lord, to the Lord in repentance and confession of faith in Jesus once for that eternal union to be established forever. But there is throughout the course of a day, I'm constantly being made aware of my transgression saying, Lord, forgive me, not so that my eternal union can be put in place, but forgive me so that mm-hmm. I can enjoy the reality of that mm-hmm. eternal union. And so confession and repentance on a daily basis, experientially, is so important. And if I think Christians just need to understand both of these, how they, how they differ, how they relate to each other, it'll help solve a, a lot of theological problems, help solve a lot of uh, our struggles in Christian living when we understand yeah. that truth. I really like those terms that you use. I feel like those are probably, that's probably the clearest I've, I've heard it explained. Uh, so I appreciate you pulling that apart for us. Uh, Cause I, I, I do think a lot of Christians are in that boat where it's it's one way or the other, mm-hmm. and there's just confusion around how are we saved? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, and if so I yeah, don't feel it, great. is it not true anymore? Or you know, all those, right, all right. those, like right. trying to reconcile those. And and honestly, um, a little bit of this was pr- prompted by people who I were that I was hearing about who were saying that once you get saved, you never need to repent because you've repented once for all and mm-hmm. it's done. And of course. <laughs> problem is, is that you read the, for example, the seven letters in Revelation two and three, what is Jesus saying to the churches? <laughs> repent over and over again. He says, repent. And so I said, the reason why you think that you don't need to repent is because you think 
you don't need you you don't need to repent in terms of your eternal union. That's that's done. That's once for all. Praise God. But in terms of your experiential daily communion, the you know, like I said, the walking in the in the almost the sensible, tangible awareness that my sins are forgiven. Uh, in order for that to sustain and grow deeper, I have to constantly be bringing things before the Lord in honesty and openness, confessing them mm-hmm. and repenting of them. Yeah, yeah, we have to. Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's Philippians too. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not because there's still work to be done, mm-hmm. but that is the experiential side of what it looks like uh, for us to to live in the reality of what's already happened. Uh, yeah, good illustration of that t- passage. Um, it's like when I officiate at a wedding and um, God is basically joining the husband and wife, but I, I'm, his, uh, I'm his messenger. And I say, I pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And so the couple comes back to me a month later and they're saying, man, our, our marriage is broken. It's shattered. And I said, no, no, it's not. You all committed yourselves once for all to each other in a covenant relationship, but your capacity to love each other on a daily basis, to be patient and kind and forgiving and enjoy the intimacy, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically, is something that has been disrupted. And so that's kind of an yeah. analogy there. The, the wedding was signed, sealed, and delivered. You are husband and wife forever, and until death do you part. But oftentimes, as we know, marriages get into trouble. And that's the experiential communion yeah. dimension. Yeah, that's great. We, that makes me think we have a, uh, a friend who talks about, uh, he says essentially like marriage is the the screws and the glue that like hold that relationship together. And it's, it's similar to what you're talking about with that uh, experiential uh, communion and eternal union. It's, it's the eternal union that holds this other thing together, even though sometimes we don't feel it and sometimes we do, but mm-hmm. we're fighting for it all because of what's already true in, in our eternal union. I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And again, that's the, that's the point of the book. All the dozen things that I talk about is people push back and they say, all right, how, how do I know that I am in eternal union? How do I know that um, the slate has been wiped clean and all my guilt in terms of, of it as a threat to my eternal welfare has been dealt with? And of course, the point of the book is, let me give you a dozen ways in which you can know this to be true. And that's that's the whole point and the yeah. aim of the book. Well, let's jump into one of them, the one that you start with. You, as, as you start to lay these things out, you say that none of them is more foundational than penal substitutionary atonement, which is a big word. We try not to use mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> big words too much without breaking them down. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can explain to us wh- what does that mean and why is it so crucial in understanding the other 11 things? Oh, yeah, it is. It's foundational. It comes from where he laid our transgressions. He laid our iniquities upon his son. Uh, he, you know, Galatians 3, he became a curse for us. Um, as you guys probably know, the concept of penal substitution is being ridiculed and mocked and uh, angrily rejected by a number of people within the professing Christian world. And I think I understand on one hand why that is happening. It's because there are some preachers out there who speak of the cross of Christ in such a way that it sounds really Mm -hmm. ugly. And they portray the father as if he's this celestial bully and they portray the son, Jesus, as if he's this unwilling victim. And it's, it, you know, they talk about it as if it's cosmic child abuse, you know, the heavenly father abusing his son. And they say, that, that's, you know, that doesn't sound like love. Well, again, penal substitution very clearly is grounded in the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, the father sends the son, but the son doesn't, isn't coerced or compelled You know, Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life of my own accord. Nobody takes it from me. You know, in Hebrews, he talks about, I have come to do thy will, Father. Um, So Jesus willingly, lovingly, joyfully offers himself up as an atoning sacrifice. And in in Hebrews 9, it says he does it through the eternal spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit in unity, uh, working together to do what is necessary to reconcile us uh, to God. And so we talk about it as being penal. The point simply is there's a penalty for sin. 
Uh, everybody understands what penalty means in our terms of our, you know, our own judicial system. Well, God is infinitely holy and righteous, and there are consequences to our rebellion, our idolatry, our unbelief, our immorality. Uh, and those consequences are the penalty that we should otherwise have to endure. Um, but the good news is it's penal substitutionary. In other words, Jesus inserts himself in our place so that the penalty we deserved, he takes upon himself and exhausts in himself the judgment and the wrath of God that mm -hmm. we otherwise should have suffered. I, I want to say this as clearly as I can. I, I hope people listening, if they get nothing else from the book, they would get this. Folks, if penal substitutionary atonement is not true, I have no good news to preach to a lost and dying world. I mean, wh what possible good can I uh, declare to a world that is living in darkness if I can't say to them, look, here is the solution to that which is the greatest threat to the eternal welfare of your soul. What is the greatest threat to the eternal welfare of your soul? It's the judgment of God. Um, it's the fact that you have rebelled against an infinitely holy God. And if we don't address that issue, what else do we have to offer um, the unbeliever? So the whole point of it is Christ willingly, voluntarily inserted himself. You know, First Peter 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And in doing that, you know, and then I come to this real fancy theological term, mm -hmm. propitiation. Romans 3, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. In offering himself, it means he satisfied or propitiated the righteous demands of God that we otherwise would have had to suffer in our own persons. That is, God, that is so glorious. That is so beautiful. It is, and again, some people reject it because they can't compute that. They can't make sense of how, how can the innocent suffer in the place of the guilty? How can the righteousness of the perfect son of God be reckoned or imputed to me and my guilt be imputed to him? And because we don't have perhaps human categories to give uh, examples of that, we think that God can't do it. But the word of God says he did. And so penal substitutionary atonement, he laid our sin upon his son is the foundation for everything else. All the other images and metaphors and illustrations only make sense because of the fact that the guilt that we deserved was laid upon Christ and he suffered in our stead. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we throw gospel around so much and that's really the heart of it. That is like you're saying, if we don't have that, I don't, I don't know that the gospel is, is good news anymore. It makes very much sense. Right. And, and if, yeah, if I can just follow up on that, just just think of this. We talk about the love of God. How is it loving if God hasn't, of his own initiative, taken steps to address the greatest threat to our souls, both now and yeah. forever? If he hasn't done that, then I don't know all the other things. I don't know, I don't know how that's loving. Um, so, again, it's God who took the initiative. I like to talk about it this way. The love of God sent the Son of God to endure the wrath of God so that we might become the children of God. And it's all of God's initiative designed to bring us into relationship with Him. Part of the reason I talk in the book about all the reasons why people reject penal substitution, um, some people just don't like the idea of divine wrath. They think, ooh, God mm -hmm. gets angry? Uh, I don't like that kind of God. Well, if if our God does not get angry at child abuse mm -hmm. and rape and genocide and poverty and racism, he's not mm -hmm. worthy of our worship. I want God to be mad at sin, but the good news is he is also so loving that he has made provision for the anger of God at sin to be laid on another in our place so that we might go free. That's the yeah. gospel. Yeah, and it, that's where th that'll preach, guys. Yeah, I was just about sure. to say preach. It. <laughs> uh, it's so interesting to me uh, on one like I get it because I've been there. I've, I've wrestled with with I think we have a God has to be both loving and just and we kind of waffle back and forth between those two, but I'm also surprised in a sense mm -hmm. because I feel like even unbelievers know this. I think when an unbeliever says, well, you know, uh, if why are there 
children starving all around the world if if there's a good God. Like, they already understand the fact that God should be upset about sin and the fallenness and brokenness, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the state in which our, our world exists. They already understand that. So it, it, it only makes sense that, yeah, absolutely, God needs to be just and sin needs to be dealt with and punished. And he actually does that through the loving side of him by giving his own son. Right. So true. So true. Glenn, did you have anything? Well, since there is 12 things in the book, but we don't really have time to walk through yeah. all 12. I'm curious if sure. you could if you could throw one out there that you maybe personally found particularly moving or helpful to remember. Sure. I love them all. <laughs> and actually there are yeah, 15. <clears throat> there are 12 that he did do and three yeah. that he never will. Uh, boy, that's a tough one. You're asking me like, which of my daughters do I love the most? <laughs> Goodness. I, I love the imagery from Psalm 103. As far as the East is from the West, so far as he removed our sin from us. That, and I try to illustrate that in, in the book and talk about, you know, the, the infinite distance. And my, you see my hands going out. East yeah. from West, as far as the East. And just... Think of going on a trajectory in both directions. Your sin goes that way. You go that way. Never the twain yeah. shall meet. And I think, I think what an incredible image that that is. Um, I, love the, uh, I love the one about that God has cast our sin into the depths mm-hmm. of the sea. Uh, and, you know, and I like to say, and he's put a no fishing sign <laughs> over that spot. Nobody's ever going to recover them. Nobody's ever going to uh, restore them. Um, so I love all those. I, I, I kind of like also, and I use this illustration in the book, that he has blotted out our sin. It's in Psalm 51 and numerous other places. And you all, I didn't even know this toy still exists. <laughs> but oh, the yes. Etch-A-Sketch, you know, it's probably real fancy <laughs> now. But when I was growing up, it was just this simple little screen about the size of my laptop here and two little dials and that was it now it's probably mechanized and who knows what but you know you could try to draw figures and you could do this and that and you looked at it and you said that's ugly and so all you had to do was you just you just tipped it and it disappeared and there's a sense in which god has done that he's erased he's blotted out all record all condemnation that our sin might have brought to bear on us and again, here's the important thing people need to understand. It isn't, it isn't that God just kind of tipped the screen and made it disappear. He took the ugliness of what we sketched on the screen of our lives and he mm-hmm. laid it on Jesus. And Jesus said, put it on me. I happily, willfully, joyfully will endure the penal consequences of those ugly, sinful portraits that your life has painted. And so, you know, this is important to remember. Um, I think I think sometimes people have this idea that um, that forgiveness is a result of God kind of waving the magic wand of mercy. And, you know, we say it to one another all the time. You know, you've done something to offend me. And I say, ah, let bygones be bygones. Forget about it. And we just kind of, you know, wave it off or we sweep it under the carpet. God can't do that. And it's not because he's, he's impotent or unable. It's because he's holy. And so he doesn't just kind of, you know, sprinkle uh, pixie dust on us and all of a sudden the guilt and the shame of our transgressions vanishes. Uh, Instead, he takes the reality of that and Jesus says, I'll endure it. I'll, I'll suffer. I'll do away with the condemnation that that guilt would require by enduring it in my own person. Um, So for example, uh, when I talk about, um, Uh, the three things that he'll never do. One of them, he will not repay us according to our iniquities. That's in Psalm 103 as well. And so I think, all right, what do we do when people sin against us? (laughs) We we make them pay Uh, in some way. We exact vengeance on them. And when, when God says that he will not repay us according to our iniquities, or he will not deal with us according to our sin, if you ask why? How? The answer is because he has dealt with his son according to our sins. He has repaid Jesus according to our iniquities. That's the beauty of substitutionary atonement. So 
Uh, I see the love of God and the justice of God in perfect harmony, working to secure the salvation of his people. So, yeah, the, I just love all those images. You know, he, he stomps our, our sins yeah, beneath his that's feet. that's a good one. He turns his face away from our sins. He hides our sin behind his back. Uh, he says, I will, I will no longer remember mm-hmm. your sin, which is an interesting idea. We talk about, can God yeah. forget? <laughs> and, um, and, you, and again, I contrast that with what you and I do in our relationships with people. People sin against us. What do we do? <laughs> we create a tapestry and put it on the wall. Joe <laughs> sinned against me. You know, we somehow, we get a tattoo. God, and God says, um, no. I will never again, I will never bring up your sin and throw it in your face to use it against you. It will never threaten my eternal union yeah. with you. So these images are so vivid. They're so beautiful all through God's word. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to you to explain what you were just saying where, you know, it's not like that sin is just magically waved away. I think we do forget that no matter how much we say it, <laughs> we forget that that sin mm. It, there's a there's a price for it, right? The the wages of sin are death, and mm-hmm. it had to be paid for. Um, so sin is not just poof gone. It, I mean, it is in a sense for us, but Jesus has to take that on. Um, and yeah, that's good. That's but good. I, exactly. I like that you also point out there's no there's no double jeopardy here. Like he doesn't lay all that on Christ just to then come back and and try to punish us for it as well. It's already been dealt with. Yeah, and again, I um, if people wonder what what's the practical takeaway yeah. from all this, if you think about it, it's not hard to understand. And I, my guess is every Christian, and I include myself here, knows what it is like to lie down at night and suddenly the day's events come racing across your mind, and you're suddenly confronted with, oh man, I yelled at my kids. They didn't deserve that. I lusted. I was greedy. I, I, I saw somebody who sinned against me, and I just nurtured that bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. And we just lie there thinking, I am so dirty in the sight of God. And that's a horrible, hor- that's a crippling, paralyzing experience. Because we think, why, why bother reading my Bible? Why bother praying, worshiping, serving others, uh, knowing how, how defiled mm. I am. And these are the truths that help Christians move beyond that. Because I can lie there at night, and just like everybody else, all those things of my failures during the day, they're going to race back into my head. And the only thing that's going to ultimately uh, get me through that hor- horrific feeling, so I say, oh, that's true, yeah, I'm, I'm honest with you, Lord. Yes, that's what I did. That's what I failed to do. God, you have cast all those sins behind your back. Uh, You do not look on them. You know, you turn your eye away from them. You've forgiven me of them. Uh, You've wiped clean the slate. If I didn't have that truth, I would live in a constant state of depression and Mm -hmm. self-condemnation. And I know that I doubt if there's a person listening to this interview that can say, oh, I never feel guilt. I never feel condemnation. I never feel shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all do, and there's only one solution to that. It's that God has laid the guilt of all your transgressions on his son and uh, has gone to unimaginable lengths to try to persuade you through biblical language and images and illustrations of the extent to which he's gone to deal with your sin so that you can be with him now and forever. So I, I don't... You know, I, I think probably what I really, uh, what really prompted me to write the book, I preached a sermon, believe it or not, one message in 45 minutes in which I dealt with all 12 of these issues, and it's very brief. But I sit in front of people all the time in my office, or I deal with people on a one-to-one basis elsewhere, and they just, they're, they're passive, they're inactive, they're withdrawn, they're terrified of relationships with others, they won't get involved mm-hmm. in community. And it's all because they're convinced mm-hmm. that they're dirty, they're defiled, they're different from everybody. Nobody knows, you know, the the, the feelings of disqualification that I live with every mm-hmm. day. And I just want to say to them, listen, do you know what? Stop focusing on what you have done in sinning and start focusing on what God has done with yeah. your sinning. Yeah. 
And if you just focus on the latter, it just it's it's so revolutionary. I, I always think back. There was this band that put out a song years ago, and in the lyrics of it, it it says, um, "As I hammered those nails into your beautiful hands, your eyes they tried to search for mine, but I looked away." And so those those lyrics were always stuck in my brain, but I always looked at them in this negative, self-condemning way, like just filling myself up with guilt, like, God, I'm the one who's putting you on that cross. I, I am putting my sin upon you. And I think I focus so much on that part and not on, okay, but what are you doing with it? You're, you're redeeming mm-hmm. what has been broken. You're, you're restoring what has been broken in a sense. And uh, yeah, I always struggled thinking, uh, just of the guilt of it all. Um, and so to know that Jesus willingly went to do this uh, and it's for a reason mm-hmm. brings light to that situation. That's so true. And again, uh, I wrote a book, uh, gosh, this was back in the mid 1990s before you guys were even born, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, I was even, I was old back then, but I wrote a book called The Singing God. And it's all based on Zephaniah 3.17. And I think probably beneath what I was writing in that book, based on that text, was the very truth that this book brings out in great detail. And it was um, the idea that, you know, I, I'll, never forget, I'll never forget this. I was sitting in front of this lady. I was pastoring in a southern Oklahoma town many years ago. And she just chronicled for me all of her failures. I, I fail my husband here. I yell at my kids there. I can't keep up my clean house. Um, I'm constantly doing this or failing in that regard. I mean, she just was rehearsing over and over and over again the ways in which she had fallen short. So I stopped her and I said, wait just a minute. So when God looks at you, what does he see? And when he opens his mouth to speak of you, what does he say? And she didn't hesitate. She said, he looks at me and he opens his mouth and says, Mm. yuck. (laughs) And I had her turn to Zephaniah 3.17, where it talks about God rejoicing with singing Mm -hmm. over us. So deep is his love. And she couldn't handle it. I mean, tears just began to Mm -hmm. stream down her face. And she says, "But, but you don't know all that? I said, no, I don't know all that you've done. God knows all that you've done. But guess what? He laid that on his son. He put it behind his back. He has removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. So live now in the reality that, that the God who has done this for you sings. You know, she said, well, I can understand him shouting at me in disgust. I said, no, no, no. He sings over you with joy. Um, so when you put these realities together, it's the truly liberating foundation for all that we do in our Christian experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, that's really good. So I'm going to shift gears ever so slightly here. Um, and, and address what I think the, the me that w- might be listening would be thinking, which is, that's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but, and mm-hmm. I, I catch myself doing this sometimes too. It's like, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel so much condemnation about my sin, but I also don't want to be the person who, uh, like <laughs> never feels bad for anything. Like I just continue to, but this, but mm. that. And so I wonder if you can help us in this area differentiate between maybe a healthy conviction of sin, but then the, what's the difference between that and this very unhelpful condemnation of sin that many of us live with? Sure. Yeah. Um, I talk about this in the book that, um, Nothing that I have said in the book about what God has done with our sin precludes the fact that the Spirit of God does bring conviction to our hearts. And we have to ask the reason, why does he do that? Does he do that to say, hey, I'm bringing bringing you to an awareness of your failures because I just want you to know that's going to exclude you from the kingdom of God? No, that's not what conviction by the Holy Spirit, that's not what the work in the in the hearts of the children of God is about. Um, he brings conviction. So, so if I come back once again, eternal union, experiential communion, the spirit does not convict me of my failures in order to threaten me with the termination of my eternal union as if somehow that's going to preclude my presence in the, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> no, the spirit of God brings conviction in order that I can acknowledge 
repent and confess so that I can move once again into the joy of what it is uh, to walk in this intimacy of communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I think of 1 Peter 1, 8, one of my favorite verses where he says, though you do not see him now, you rejoice, you believe in him. <clears throat> though you do not see him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, a lot of people hear that and they say, joy inexpressible and full of glory. How is that possible when all I seem to see in front of my face constantly are the multiplicity of ways in which I have failed? And that's where the reality of eternal union has to bear down on and energize experiential communion. It's as we reflect on the fact that God has done for this for us in Jesus that he has uh, forever and finally dealt with the guilt of our transgressions, that we are now forever uh, citizens of the kingdom of God, destined for the new heavens and new earth. That's, that truth has to echo in our heads. I mean, it's, I wish it were possible, and we're all three wearing <laughs> headphones here. I wish it were possible that we could be wearing headphones that have a constant recording that goes never-ending, 24-7, that, that reminds us of these, these dozens and dozens of yeah. biblical texts where God says, I've forgiven you, I've cleansed you, I've set you free. Um, and it's only when we do that that we're going to be able to move past the kind of the impasse that you've just described that all of us experience mm -hmm. at one time or another. And I would just, I would just say this also to, um, to people who are listening to this or watching it, um, Christians have differing degrees of sensitivity in their conscience. There are some Christians, and by God's grace, and I'm not saying that either one is more holy or sanctified than the other, but some Christians are able to receive this truth just once and for all, and they just live in the power and the, and the freedom that it brings. And when they do fail, there's almost this instinctive response, oh yeah, but God has dealt with my sin in Christ. I don't have to live in the guilt and condemnation of that. There are other Christians who have a very sensitive conscience and just the slightest tinge of failure just stings and it sticks with them. And they're the ones who have to constantly be reminded of, uh, of what God has done. I, t I tend to land on the overly sensitive yeah. conscience. Um, I know others, I, I wish that I didn't. <laughs> I wish I would, you know, I, I think life would be a lot more joyful. But um, here's, the, here's the other thing, and this is a, I don't even know if I talk about it in the book, but here's a principle of the Christian life that people need to understand. We sometimes think that the more mature we become in Jesus, the more we grow and the more we are sanctified, the less painful and the less distressing our mm -hmm. sins will be. That's not true. You see, we think, oh, when I first got saved, I sinned a lot, but I didn't feel the pain of it very much. Now that I'm growing up in Christ, I sin less, but I feel, the, but now I feel the pain of it more. Um, the fact is, the closer we are conformed to the image of Jesus, the more distressing to our souls will be the even slightest of transgression. So I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't feel the sting of sin. In fact, I hope and pray, you know, I've been a believer for about, what, 65 years now? I'm 71. Um, I hope and pray that I have grown closer to Christ in such a way that I'm more offended by my failures now than I was when I was six years old when I first became a believer. Um, but the good news is I'm also more conscious of the reality of forgiveness and all that it means and the love that God has for me. So my point is this, here's the principle. When you're first born again, you're a new Christian, you still sin a lot, you don't feel its yeah. pain very much. As you grow up in Christ, you sin a lot less, but you feel yeah. the pain a lot more. That's just a fundamental principle in scripture. Yeah, that that's helpful. And and I'll tell you that I lay I think I land on the same end of <laughs> the spectrum as you do uh my my counselor uses words like highly sensitive and deep feeler <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so uh 
I have a I have a very good friend. I won't mention his name. I was just with him last week for a while, and he just has this robust confidence in the love of God and the love of Christ. It's not because he is oblivious to his sin. He's not he's not you know turning a blind mm-hmm. eye to his failures. He just has such this constant daily moment by moment awareness of what he calls the ravished heart of God mm-hmm. for him as his child, his son, that he doesn't wallow in his in his transgressions and his iniquities and sins. Um, he just brings them back to the Lord and said, thank you that, that you have dealt with this finally and forever. And again, Christians are all across the spectrum, ever from the hypersensitive conscience to the one that is almost fully liberated from any sense of conviction or condemnation. And most of us fall yes. somewhere in between. <laughs> Except for you, Tanner. You're way out there on the hypersensitive yeah, side. I'm far right? out there. Um, okay. Well, as we, as we wrap up here, I want to talk about the way you actually wrap up the book, um, which I think is great, but it also may feel a little bit like a left turn for people because you, you essentially say that while all of these uh, 15 truths that you cover in the book are, are go- glorious and great, they aren't ultimately what makes the gospel good news. So what makes the gospel good news? <laughs> yeah. 1 Peter 3.18, where it says that the just for the unjust, some translations render it the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. And here's the key phrase, in order to bring us mm-hmm. to God. I learned this lesson most deeply from my friend John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. And the point that John makes in that book, and I, and I talk about it a little bit in mine, is that people say, I want Jesus because I don't want to live un- with this feeling of guilt any longer. Or I want Jesus because I don't want to suffer the taunting and the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil any longer. Or I want Jesus because I want to be ultimately delivered from this body. I want a resurrected, glorified body. Or I want Jesus so I can live in the glories of the new heaven and new earth. Um, here's Here's this point. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Those things that I just described justification, redemption, forgiveness, the presence of the Spirit, the hope we have, they're only good insofar as they bring us to God. It's only good because we get God. We get Him. We see Him. We, We are eternally captivated and enthralled and infatuated and mesmerized by His beauty and His splendor to the deep and abiding satisfaction of our souls. If we think that the gospel is good news because it gets us off the hook from our sin, we've missed the point of the gospel. Yes, Jesus has dealt with our sin, but why? So we can come into the presence of, of our great and glorious God. Um, let me just, I'm turning my Bible. This, um, everybody knows this text, and I talk about it in the book. I think I close it, the, the, the doxology mm-hmm. in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's one thing to have a a soothed conscience. You know, my guilt is gone. It's another thing to know that I'm clothed in righteousness of Jesus. Wonderful. It's another thing to know I've been redeemed from from, uh, slavery to sin. That's good and great. It's one thing to know that, you know, I have the power of the Holy Spirit to help me in my daily struggles. But all of those things are blessings to the degree that they make it possible for me to stand blameless in the presence of his great glory with joy. <clears throat> so the, the gospel is that, we, is that ultimately we get God. Penal substitutionary atonement, all these things that God has done with our sin, those are steps. Those are not the end. Those are the steps that make it possible for us to stand in his glorious presence without fear, without anxiety, without a and a sense of impending judgment. But as, as Jude says, this blows my mind with mm-hmm. great joy. Yeah. I mean, you talk to Christians. Hey, Christian, let me ask you, how do you react when you envision yourself standing in the presence of the infinitely glorious and holy God? And most of them say, I'm terrified. Jude says, no, he's the one who is able to make this happen 
with great joy in your heart. You're going to delight in that moment. And again, the only reason is because of what God's done yeah. with your sin. I That's love awesome. It. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I've, we're not going to end it better than that. So, <laughs> so we might as well call it a day. Uh, but that, this has been a great conversation, Sam. We're really thankful for you coming on the show and, and sharing all this with us. It's my pleasure. I've enjoyed it, guys. Thank Anytime. And then Sam for- After, if we have another pandemic and I get locked down, I'll write a book and you can have we me will. back to we talk will. about that one. I was. Now, I'm not <laughs> wishing another pandemic on us. Please. Uh, that is a follow up that I, I do like to ask. If if anybody listening wanted to see some of these resources that you've put out, some of these books that you've written, where can they go to kind of to follow and know what projects and things you have coming out? Sure. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, just go to my website. It's samstorms.org. That's S-A-M-S-T-O-R-M-S, samstorms.org. It's not .com any longer. That got <laughs> no, hacked and no. stolen. It's dot o- it's, yeah, it's dot .org. And uh, all of my books are listed there. I blog on a weekly basis. You can link to my podcast mm. there, which uh, I typically do twice a week. Um, all of my, I, There are a couple of thousand articles, reviews, discussions of biblical texts, theological things. I've got my entire course on church history that I've taught for years available. Mm. All of it's there for free. And I have a copyright policy. And my copyright policy is you have the right to copy. (laughs) And you don't have to ask for my permission. You don't have to write to me and say, Sam, can I use this quote from you? I'll give you credit. I said, look, use it and don't mention my name. It's all there free. Um, to be used for the glory of Christ in his kingdom. So samstorms.org, um, hopefully that'll be a blessing to people. Um, and I'm constantly putting new material in there. I'm getting ready to, to finish preaching through Romans, and I'm going to put all 60-some-odd sermon transcripts, mm. verse-by-verse study of Romans, verse-by-verse study of John, uh, of Hebrews. All these things are going to be available for free. That's awesome. Awesome. That's, that's a ton of good stuff. People are going to start thinking I'm a lot smarter than I am when I just start uh, copying <laughs> Sam Storm's quotes and not and not mentioning it. So uh, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Don't mention me. <laughs> All right, Sam. Well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, guys, as always, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bible and Stuff podcast is a production of Bible and Stuff. We do more than just podcasts, so if you want to know more about something we've covered on the show, just visit our website at bibleandstuff.com. Our show is hosted by Tanner Britt and Glenn Brand, and our theme music is by The Sing Team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.